and you can turn to page 808, and you'll be right where we need to be this morning. Um, once again, let me welcome everyone. If you're new to Escohasset, my name is Joe Franzone, and I serve here as the pastor, and it's a tremendous privilege to have you here with us, and we hope that you are feeling warmly at home. And as always, if you have a question about what was said or sung or read this morning, I would do my best to try to answer that question for you when our time together has ended. Let's hear the word of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings, though, that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour we go hungry and thirsty, we are in rags, We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. And if you could just take your eye down to verse 16. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his word this morning. Let's bow together and let's pray. Our God and Father, you are so wonderful. And as we bow to you, the great and mighty God, we ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word. And Father, we really need to hear you speak far and beyond the voice of a man. You said through your prophet Isaiah, that the ones that you esteem are those who are humble and lowly in spirit and tremble at your word. Therefore, because as a church we need your guidance, because as individuals we need to see our lives as they really are, and because our needs differ, we ask that you would match our need with a great manifold gift of your grace and mercy in order that none of us will leave here unchanged or unconverted are thinking ourselves unloved, are thinking of ourselves too highly. Please then, Father, stoop to my weakness, mighty as you are. As always, God, I'm fragile, the moment too weighty, your honor too important. So we would ask that the Holy Spirit would come now in power and be our teacher for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, this morning we continue in our studies in 1 Corinthians 4, and if you were with us last time, you'll remember that Paul had been teaching the Corinthian church the absolute foolishness of boasting, and the principle that Paul was establishing for the church was as they were faithfully being taught God's word, and if they would humbly receive God's word, then they would understand the danger of going beyond God's word. And at that point, the clarity they needed would be the clarity that would come. And the clarity that would come was that it was of absolute absurdity to be pride-filled when we owe everything, everything, not some things, 
not even most things. No, we owe everything to the grace of God. Subsequently, Paul wrote in verse 6, and if your Bible's open, you'll see it there. As he applied this to himself and Apollos, then you'll know the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. And when they are any convert knows the meaning of do not go beyond what is written, then one will very quickly understand that it is of the highest arrogance and it is of the absolute foolishness for one to boast, to judge, or to assert themselves as tremendous, most especially in God's church. And that was verse 7, for what makes you different from anyone else? In other words, how come you think you're so special? How come you believe that everyone is supposed to cater to you, to listen to you, and prefer you? Well, there's only one reason for that kind of silliness. It is pride. It is arrogance. It is verse 6b, going beyond what is written. And such was the case in Corinth. The Corinthian church had a blind spot, a huge blind spot. But we ought not to scold them too quickly, for which of us here this morning does not have a blind spot? Something that we just miss, and yet it is so apparent to others. And our blind spots can be personally, but they also can be congregationally. So at the heart of the boasting taking place in God's church in Corinth was the belief that they were really successful, that they were really tremendous, that they were very gifted, and they were a really lively, cutting-edge, effective church. So it would be the kind of church that would have lots and lots of adjectives about themselves in their newspapers and online advertisements. So you would say, yes, we are tremendous, we are very lively, and the Spirit's moving, and we're a church full of winners. Wouldn't you like to be a winner too? Wouldn't you like to feel and look and be tremendous too? Well, come on over, Rover, to our church and have some of us. And Because of this, the church had settled down into this very dangerous illusion that they had become the best that they could be. But, and please listen carefully, if one would have brought themselves into that context and said, you know what, I'm going to attend Super Church this Sunday in Corinth. When they arrived at that church, they would have found many other things which were not advertised. And if you look at your Bibles, what you'll see beginning in chapter 5 and all the way through, Paul begins to reveal this things, these things to us. But before we get there, just let me say this. That's why in our understanding of the Bible, the context of the passage is the only truly way to understand the passage. You know, anybody can drop into their Bible and pull out of the Bible whatever they like. But usually when people drop in and pull out stuff from their Bible, it's very dangerous, it's not helpful, and we turn the Bible into kind of a magic book filled with spells to fix things. So if someone attended the church in Corinth, they would also find chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, they would find in this tremendous church that incest was taking place there. And the church was okay with it. In verses 9 through 13, moral purity in the church was totally lacking. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, Paul deals with the problems of lawsuits, if you can believe it, Christian to Christian in the church. Then verse 9, until the end of chapter 6, Paul deals with the dreadful need of sexual purity in the local church. So for those of us who think that we need to talk more about sex, we are going to get a whole bowl full of it uh, for a few weeks. It'll be coming out of our ears. Chapter 7, they're unclear about marriage. Chapter 8 through 10, soul winning is either horrible or non-existent in the church. Chapter 11, they can't even go to the Lord's table and get that right. And loved ones, I want you to see there is an inevitable pattern that is taking place in Corinth. It's in other places in the Bible and in some local congregations. And this is what it is. 
When our lips and hearts are full of pride-filled boasting and judgments, then the implication, whether we mean it or not, is that we think we've arrived. And when we think we've arrived, then we begin to think more and more self-satisfied thoughts, and our lives tend to turn in upon itself because, after all, we've arrived. You know, nothing much to do, nothing much to learn. And the byproduct of this, as in the case of the Corinthian church, there is inevitably a laundry list of the most basic truths of the Christian faith which are being neglected, which they remain blind to and remain unrepented about. And unless the church gets a word from God, and unless the church humbly receives that word from God, then the Christians in that church will become more like their enemy, the devil, and less like their father and friend, the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil is, is pride-filled. He, make, he makes a mess, and he makes a mockery of everything, and he ignores God's revealed will. Christ is the king whose heart drips with Calvary love. He's the king who bleeds and sweats blood. He's the king who right now, right now is, is on job, serving and interceding on behalf of all God's true children. And Christ, when he walked this earth, said that his meat and drink was to do his father's will. And see, that's the principle. Self-satisfaction leads to growing immorality. It might be secret, but it's there. And growing ineffectiveness and delusional about what we ought to expect as God's people this side of heaven. So one of the largest churches in the second largest city in England at the close of the 20th century, they're no longer functioning. Why? One word, pride. I read this pack past week that at the end of their time they were wondering as a church should they should they meet only once in a while or kind of sell off the building to to a concert hall so they're no longer proclaiming God's word they're no longer singing God's praise and by the way the reason why I caught my attention because that was the church where Richard Baxter pastored if you know anything about Richard Baxter you know that's just like stunning and do you think that when they built that church they built it so that one day it would be okay to close the doors as of January of 6th, this year, one of the largest churches in America, it would be considered a super church. They've essentially dissolved. And the great empire, right? That's the church. Do what they do. That's the church. The great empire has dissolved and divided. And who knows what will happen next? Well, what happened? One word, pride. Listen to your Bibles, Ephesians 3.17, the church in Laodicea. You say you're rich, you've acquired wealth, and you do not need a thing. But Christ says you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and, and you're naked. And if we think this kind of thing could never happen here to us, then pride is crouching at our door, and it desires to have us. And so all of that, by way of introduction, takes us then to our first point. If you have a worship folder, you'll see it there. Not now, but later, and that's verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich, you have become kings, and that without us. And if you suspect that the Apostle Paul is being a little sarcastic, you are right. But in a helpful way. These things are meant to humble them. The city of Corinth was a large, important, prosperous, and decadent city. The people spent much of their time going down every avenue searching for the good life, having their senses stirred. It's not a, unlike any metropolitan city that we have in our context today. And what had taken place at the church is that they, they threw themselves into that and they were dragging Christ along with them. Verse 8, they have it all. They're rich, they're kings, 
They have the good life. And you want to say, well, howdy diddly do. How terrific for you. Sun City surfs up. You're victorious. Wow. And with absolutely no help. But here's the thing. Someone might say, look, they are in Christ. They are Christians here. Is it not true that they are full and that they are rich and that they're the king's kids? And you would reply, yes, they are the king's kids. But here's the deal. The king's kids, while always being king's kids, have a particular line of living on earth now and will enjoy a forever particular line of living in heaven later. But the later is not now. Hence, hence the first point. Not now, but later. And what Paul was saying to them essentially is this. Why in the dickens are you acting like the kingdom of heaven has happened in Corinth? Or if you like Cohasset. Now if you look at verse 8, you see those three little fra- phrases. Having all you want. You've become kings. You are rich. These are all uh, messianic phrases used in the New Testament for the kingdom of God when it comes in all its fullness. In all its fullness is the key. The fullness hasn't come. So these are future graces. And they will be fulfilled completely, not now, but later. So let's, let me give you one example. Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. If we endure now, we will also reign later with Christ. And that's the point. And so the Corinthian church was behaving as if the kingdom of God had fully come. It was all glory all the time. And so what Paul tells them is that it's very foolish of them to act as though they were already in heaven. So you say, well, what would that look like? Well, I think it looks some like, some like this. There's nothing much to struggle for, nothing much to do, nothing much to learn, nothing much to give thanks for in public worship. We've arrived. You know, just take a nice long trip. Now listen, yes, they were going to heaven. But no, they were not there yet. And what Paul is revealing to them is now is the period where suffering is the lot and the privilege for all true Christians. It might not be all the time, but it will be sometimes. So think with me just for a minute. How, how do religious charlatans make their living and cause their pain for those who would listen to them? This is what they do. You, you want some glory now? You want to be rich and a king and never no need and never no pain and never no sorrow? Then hey, hey. Have I got the thing for you? Come on over to our side. We have the victory. And people fall foul of that stuff. But also, that's why some people reject Christianity. They come to us and say, listen, I got my work time, and I got my play time, and I got my tea time, and I got my me time, and it's all going great. And you want to tell me that I'm a sinner, and you want to tell me something about God's wrath and a day of judgment? Really? Really? You see, what the Corinthian church did is they took a truth, they pushed it to an extreme, and adopted a kind of triumphalist approach, which was all glory all the time, forgetting the fact that now the Christians still have work to do. Now we still face our sin. Now we still face ourselves. And now we will face our sufferings. And that's why Paul says what he says in verse 8 at the very end. Do you see it there? How I wish that you really had begun to reign so that we also might reign with you. And what is Paul saying? He's saying not now, but later. And so they thought they were tremendous. And Paul says, as an apostle of Jesus Christ, I haven't arrived yet. I'm not even close to where you guys, quote, are at. 
So the man who lived a life of suffering that would, would just break a thousand hearts, whose, whose back was beaten, whose hands no doubt shook when he held them out. But he loved the Lord Jesus Christ fiercely, is saying that it's not all glory now as he walks to the earth, that he doesn't have it made. That it's not all going super. Well, why not, Paul? Is something wrong with you? No. No, here's the deal. Not now, but later. And that takes us to our second point. Not up, but down. And so I would just beg you to get this point because this is such a tremendous help as we embark on the new year. Not up, but down is the way of our master. Not up, but down is the way of the cross. And part of me thinks that when they, they read verse 9, and I hope you're looking at your Bible, when they read verse 9, they should have immediately been humbled. Because having to endure myself for 47 years... And having been in pastoral ministry for 18 years now, I know that we, by nature, as a people, are not easily humbled. Not up but down is a paradox. It seems to us upside down. For some, it might not even seem American because this will confront the American dream. Because people who are very concerned about themselves, who are very concerned about their reputation or their status or their pleasures, authentic Christian ministry is very difficult to accept let alone to embrace. But Paul understands the paradox. The Corinthians don't, but Paul does. And so what Paul gives then is, is three metaphors, or if you like, pictures from their context to make the point. So the first picture is there in verse 9. I, I just call it a dead man walking. Verse 9, for it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like those condemned to die in the arena. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as humanity. So what Paul does here is he takes a familiar scene. And this was the scene. When a Roman general won a great victory, he brought into the city. He wouldn't be through the main gate. They'd have a special gate prepared and decorated for the general and his armies. There would be singers there. There would be lovely people there and players. It was just a huge spectacle. So the general would come marching first. And so all the best and brightest troops, the crack group, the guys that were really tremendous. And Paul says, we're not in that group. Then follows the soldiers carrying the spoils of victory. And Paul says, we are not in that group. And then are followed the prisoners of war dressed in chains. And Paul says, we are not in that group. Then at the very, very end, dragging up the rear, if you would, would be the saddest looking people, prisoners, which everyone knew, no one had to say a thing, that these poor people were destined not for jail, but for the arena. And so as soon as the procession ended, they'd take them to Olympic Stadium, and they would drop them in the middle, and there were lions there to fight, there might have been gladiators there to fight, or they might have had to fight themselves. And Paul says, that is my group. That's our group. In fact, do you see what he says in verse 16 to the church? Therefore I urge you to imitate me. So the Corinthians would say, we are tremendous, we are on the top of the line, we are kicking some tail on our earthly pilgrimage. Come on over. And Paul says, you know what, I'm in the back of the line, I'm ready to meet my death, I'm a spectacle. Verse 10, the whole universe sees me, so not just creation, this side of heaven, but all of creation sees me, and they're just watching me die. I'm a dead man walking. That's Paul's first picture. The second picture is on the kitchen man's garbage. And here's why. Verse 13, he says, Up to this moment we have become the scum of the earth, the, the refuse of the world. So the word scum is the word that gives the idea of all the trash 
and all the garbage that had to be swept up on the kitchen floor, Paul says, that's my group. So yesterday after the ministry summit, I had some chores to do, and guess what one of my chores was? I had to go home, right? This is how hard it is for me at my house. I had to go home, didn't get any break, go home, get the broom, and start sweeping the kitchen. And as I was sweeping the kitchen, I looked in the dustpan and said, that's Paul, and that needs to be me. The second illustration that he gives is this. It's the word perissima, and it's the word for refuse, and it's the scrapings, the filth, and the residue of the bottom of the kitchen pots. So here's the picture, guys. All the goo and the gunk that would be on a kitchen floor, on a kitchen pot, that's all scraped up up, and taken to a drain or taken to a gutter. Paul said, that's me. That's how I want you to understand me and those who serve with me. So here, here's the juxtaposition. Hey, super-duper Corinthian Christian. You are rich, you are kingly, and you're full-bellied. What a marvel you are. What a marvel you are. And Paul says, you know what? I haven't arrived yet. I'm a dead man walking. I'm kitchen floor and kitchen pot scum. And then he gives another example. Again, from verse 13. And I put the phrase, I'm the last man dying. And so you see that little phrase, scum of the earth? The Corinthians would have understood what that meant. In that context, the scum of the earth was like a catchphrase. And what it meant was this. When a city was struck by some natural disaster or plague, it was, this was in the Roman world, in order to appease the so-called gods, whoever the community collectively would consider the most useless, the bottom of the barrel individuals, that they would be taken to the sea or the river or the lake and they would be drowned as a sacrifice to appease the gods. So the lowest part of the culture, Paul says, that's us. That's me. It's this kind of thing. Okay, so there's five men in a four-man boat. There's an engineer, there's a doctor, there's a scientist, a farmer, and a pastor. <laughs> Who gets tossed? <laughs> Pastor's a goner. That's what Paul is saying. That is what we are. Now listen carefully. He doesn't have a death wish. He still lived and breathed and ate and slept and served and worked. And he took his leave from things to time to time. But at the end of the day, he loved his Savior. He knew his place. He knew his task and where his task would take him on this earth. And you see, that's the principle. Not up, but down. And loved ones, again, is that not the way of the master? Is that not the way of the cross? Listen to your Bibles, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. And then you say, well, what do we do with all that wealth? 2 Corinthians 5, 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but live for him who died for them and was raised again. And as you think about these things, isn't this the truth? That those throughout Christian history who's made the most lasting impact on us, the most helpful impressions for the good, that over the long haul have have been effective, again, over the long haul. We're not talking two, three years. We're talking 20, 30, 40 years over the long haul have been the kind of people who understood what Paul was saying and didn't try to fight what Paul was saying in these verses. They were the kind of people who just put it on the line for Jesus. A few quotes. One from my dad. This is John Calvin. Whoever the Lord has adopted ought to prepare themselves for hard, toilsome, and unquiet living. Martin Luther Luther King Jr. 
Christianity has always insisted that the cross we bear always precedes the crown we wear. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, pastor, martyr, prophet, spy, as the title of the book says, when Jesus bids a man, when Jesus bids a man or a woman, he calls them to come and die. Here's what my dad said, and I didn't think about this till last night when I was reviewing all this. When I first told my father I was really thinking about going into pastoral ministry, he said a number of things, but one of the things he said to me was this. He said, Joe, are you prepared for the long haul of ministry? 22 years of age, are you prepared for the long haul of ministry? And so unless you haven't been paying attention, surely you, you just sense the tension that has to be felt when we read these things. I mean, these things aren't easy to preach, and I suspect they're not easy to listen to. But this is what Paul is doing. This is where we're going to be helped. Paul takes this true, this extraordinary statement, and he takes these illustrations to drive home his point and to humble the church. And so, okay, this all sounds remote for most of us here. So look at verse 11. To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We're in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. I mean, most of us here are are not like that at all. Most of us have good jobs and a good home and plenty to eat and good vehicles and good clothes. And and we have a, a sound retirement prospects. And maybe our biggest worry is, okay, am I going to have enough time to do the things I'd like to do? I mean, that could be the true. But here's the deal. In fact, I'm going to quote from John Stott. This is what he says. The difficulty we have in applying these verses may reveal how far we have drifted from the New Testament pattern. Most of us are not cursed, persecuted, or slandered. But this is not so everywhere, and it shouldn't be taken for granted. We can't be popular and faithful at the same time. We must allow the Word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. So you see, if we don't think like the Apostle Paul thinks, then we probably won't live as he lived. And if we don't live as he lived, we'll never know the great glory and the great truth and the great wonder of suffering for the sake of the gospel. You see, it is so, so easy for us to get along in this world right now as it exists, at least right now. It might not always be that way, but right now it is so easy for us to exist and we want to play and keep the gospel to ourselves. But loved ones, that is up and not down. And Paul says, the way of the cross, the way of the cross is down and it's not up. And so before we get to our final point, in effect, what Paul is telling the church, as you think about these things big picture, is he's giving them the full gospel. That's what he's doing. So so here's the full gospel. For everyone in Christ, we cannot, we may not, we should not relate to God on the basis of our personal performance, right? How could we? We can never do enough to be right with God. So let's just think for, for an example. When we get to the section on sexual morality, and we find ourselves just struggling terrifically with that, and then we say, you know what? I know. I'm going to work really hard for Jesus. I'm going to make huge sacrifices, scum of the earth, type stuff, and surely that will balance the scales. It will not balance the scales. That's Islam. That's not Christianity. Christianity has always said that we're accepted by a holy God, not because of our holiness, and not even our effort in holiness, but we are accepted on account of Christ's holiness only, period. So we stand before God, I guarantee you, he's not looking for our righteousness to bring us in. 
He's looking for Christ's righteousness. But Christianity has also said that it actually really, really means something to follow Jesus Christ. So there's no uh, easy believism inherent in the gospel. So there's no bow once and off you go, do what you like. Our lives becoming the devil's playground. No. God doesn't become our beck and call God who better give us good. He better give us good. You see, loved ones, the gospel says our holiness can never save, but still calls for holiness as evidence that we are saved. Let me just, one scripture, 1 John 2, 5. This is how we know that we are in Christ. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And some of us walk very, very slowly, and some of you walk a bit faster. And only God ultimately knows who is his, but all live in Christ as Jesus did. So think about that. We're all to be as Christ. So think about that in relation to what's happening here in Corinth. Okay, so when Jesus walked this earth, was he tempted? Was he tempted by saying, you know what? Let's skip all the suffering. Let's skip the cross, and you can be the king. No suffering required. Is that what the evil one said? Answer, yes. And so didn't he also say the evil one said, you know what? You look so hungry. Wouldn't you like to be full? Well, just do some of that stuff that you do and strut your stuff. Answer, yes. And was Christ also tempted by the evil one? You know, go out there and do something big, something tremendous, a crowd invoking. You're a king. Do that stuff. Answer, yes. Stay with me. So was Christ thought of as a fool? Verses 11, 12, 13. Was he dishonored? Was he hungry? Was he thirsty? Was he homeless? Answer, yes. Did Jesus say that the student is no better than the teacher? Answer, yes. Did Jesus say that if we're going to have to have life, we're going to have to lose our life? Answer, yes. Now, in light of all that, has Jesus ever lowered his standard for those who follow him? Answer, No. So here's what you need to see. Our context doesn't change the content. Okay? We can't change the the, the meaning of these terms that Paul is using. That was way back then. They like to be treated like scum way back then, but times are different. We can't do that. The culture doesn't change the conduct or the context. And so because Jesus doesn't lower his standards, he simply magnifies his grace. He magnifies his grace. These verses are a dirt-revealing mirror to the Corinthian church. They were high and mighty, and they needed to be brought down for their own good. And so, again, he doesn't lower his standard. He simply magnifies his grace. And that's why Paul was sent to that smug church. They needed to know that they had not arrived. They are not kings. They are not rich. They are not full. Not the way they think. And so Paul shakes up the status quo. Okay, number one, not now but later. They haven't arrived. Number two, not up but down. Verses nine and following, the way of the cross. Our final point, don't live but die. So put yourself in this position. So you're a church and you got newspaper advertisements and you got online advertisement and you got your people passing out pamphlets about the church. And imagine that you read verse 13 on the pamphlet. Look at it. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world, and we invite you to join us at either our 9 a.m. or 10.30 a.m. service. By the way, we have really good coffee and really good donuts in between. 
You see, the fact that you're laughing means you understand the tension. Because most of us, if we're going to be honest, we don't understand completely what it means to be the scum of the earth or the refuse of the world. You know, so we can't think, oh, I'm going to go home, I'm going to skip the football game, I'm going to skip my lunch, I'm going to actually go to the prayer service, and then I'll know what it is to be the scum. You can't do that. No. But do this. Go into your polite conversations through the course of a week. Talk to your friends and your neighbors or colleagues and, and tell them your firm conviction that Jesus Christ is God's one and only son, that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven, and that Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath of God on our sin. Say that to them, and I guarantee you, you might well be regarded as the refuse of the world or the scum of the earth. Or go into your business gatherings or wherever you buy your stuff through the course of the week. Or maybe your break rooms and say, you know what, guys, I really can't be part of that conversation. I really can't do what you would like me to do. It would be displeasing to God. And you may well be regarded as the scum of the earth and the refuse of the world. And loved ones, because we haven't arrived, because life will not be perfect this side of heaven, all our joy is touched with pain. I mean, that could be a tremendous help for some of us here this morning. All the joys that we have in this world are touched with pain. As soon as we started our Christmas morning, we knew that there would be a Christmas night. And people would have to go home. And the older you get, and I'm sure some of you know this, and you see your little kids grow up before your eyes, and you're going to say there's going to be one Christmas and they won't be able to make it. It's going to break your heart. That's life. That's the tension. And some of us have been great in business or we have great professional skills, but we know there's going to come a day we're going to have to turn in all our stuff, shut the door, say goodbye. It's over. And some of us might be extremely gifted in athletics or other things, but we know that no matter how vibrant we are, no matter how strong we know ourselves to be, the day is coming to an end when we can't be what we once were. And all of us know that there's come a day when our bodies are going to die and our names will be in the obituaries. Well, why is all that stuff true? Because this side of heaven, there is a glorious tension. Yes, we are redeemed in Christ, but we still live in a fallen world. And in this fallen world, the Christian dies to live. Yes, glory, but not glory all the time. I don't know this to be true, but sometimes I think that if we are really, really honest with the question, how's it going? I bet if we were honest, instead of giving the standard, you know, evangelical, everything's going great, it's going super and tremendous, and Jesus is talking and booting and hearing all that stuff, we might say, you know what? <laughs> it's bad. It's very bad. Maybe we'd stay a little bit longer and weep a little bit more and pray a little bit more. And I, you know, I say this only to help you. Would it just disappoint you to know that most of my mornings when I wake up, I wake up afraid. Just don't bounce out of bed. Not, not most mornings. We will never reach perfect bliss here. We will never have total perfect health here. We'll not always have instant guidance and constant beautiful contact with Jesus Christ. We're still mortal. We'll still fight the devil and the flesh and the world. We're going to have to wrestle, we're going to have to watch, and we're going to have to pray because we still fall and we still fail. We still have work to do. And yes, there are many good things that we should enjoy, and I hope you're enjoying them, but we haven't arrived. We live between two worlds. And because we live between two worlds, there must be tension. There must be tension. They'll never go away. 
there must be tension. Until heaven. And as soon as we get to heaven, that switch is, is switched. <laughs> that switch is flipped. How's that? And all this stuff won't even matter. Philippians 1.29 It's been granted for you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Some of you will know that um, Andre Crouch, the very gifted Christian singer, he passed away Thursday afternoon. He was 72 years old. I believe it was a heart attack. He had a lot of terrific songs. In fact, when I was a little kid, I grew up on some of his music. I liked him a lot. There's just one song, one line, and then the chorus. I've had many tears and sorrows. I've had many questions for tomorrow. There's been times I didn't know right from wrong. But in every situation, God gave me blessed consolation that my trials come to only make me strong. And then he says this, through it all, through it all, I've learned to trust in Jesus and I've learned to trust in God. Through it all, through it all, I've learned to depend upon his word. And ladies and gentlemen and young people, This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, how we give glory to your name. How we thank you, God, that you understand this tension. We thank you, God, that you would give us help. So for those of us here this morning that find it by way of necessity to get this right, will you please help us, God? Help us to stay on that line and as our life unfolds, live the way of the cross, not to be afraid, not to be sad at times because of what it costs, but to be happy that some glorious day when we see our beautiful, precious Savior, it'll all make sense and it'll all be wonderfully okay. And for those of us here who just might fight this, maybe we don't fully understand it, will you just help us along the way? Show show us why the tension and the suffering and the pain and show us why these things matter over the long haul. Remind us, Father, that the song in heaven that we read from Revelation is the song about the the lamb who was slain. And the lamb who was slain will be a song that we'll sing for all eternity. Keep Keep our lives sensible then in light of all the things that we learned this morning. And so may your love and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be ours both now and forevermore. Amen.